So the reading is found in the Bible at page 1149. And we're going to be reading from 1 Corinthians 7, verse 25. So page 1149. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it's good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she's not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is devoted to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably towards the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong, and he feels he ought to marry, he should do, so, do as he wants. He's not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who's under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and who's made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is. And I think I too 
have the Spirit of God. Good evening, everyone. Isn't it great to be together? And to be together without restrictions, we continue to be thankful to God for his sustaining grace and provision through uh, what we've experienced in these last few years with the pandemic. But if just for one more evening I can get you to cast your minds back to those really difficult days when COVID was at its peak, didn't it really affect life in some big ways? Major events and decisions were put on hold, and wisely so. I'm sure many of us had friends or family that either had to or thought it wise to delay some big things, such as a new job, perhaps, or a house move, a big birthday party, or even a marriage. COVID, in many ways, helped put all these things in perspective. It helped us to see what was truly important, given the uncertainty of life, the fragility of life. It also left many of us with some difficult decisions to make about what a wise course of action looks like in circumstances like that. And particularly those of us who are Christians, how how we should navigate those things in a way that glorifies God and reflects his grace to others. Now, we weren't the first generation of people in the world to face these kinds of issues, and I doubt we will be the last. When we read 1 Corinthians, we can often feel very removed from the cultural things that Paul is addressing. And we are very removed from them. Lots of them are quite alien to us. But we also do have many big things in common with those who first read this letter from Paul. So as we travel again to first century Corinth, as we take a look around, yes, we're going to be faced with some really complex social issues of the time, But as we look at those, we're also going to see bigger issues that are faced by all Christians of every time and culture. These include the question of whether to marry or whether to remain single. That's the major topic in this section. But it also relates broader to a broader question of how deeply we should invest ourselves in the various ups and downs of life in this world. If you're here tonight and you're considering trusting Jesus as your saviour and king for the first time, uh, then welcome. It's great to have you. Uh, And while this letter was written to Christians, it does offer you an invitation to examine the kind uh, of things that the Christian life involves. I think it helps you and us uh, to get all these things in perspective, to see where life is ultimately heading and how we can live a contented, fulfilled life now by following Jesus, even in the difficult times, even in the times of crisis. We're going to deal with some of the tricky bits straight away, so we're not distracted by them as we look at the big picture. Uh, So three quick tricky things. Uh, First thing to flag up, uh, when Paul talks about virgins, he is indeed talking about virgins, but specifically he's referring to unmarried women. Uh, We see this in verse 34, if you see that there, where he uses the two terms side by side. Um, He doesn't always use that term for unmarried women, so verse 27. Um, But in describing unmarried men, he just says unmarried men, like in in verse 32 there. 
So why, why this distinction? What's going on here? Well, Paul's responding to the situation in Corinth. He's responding to questions that the Corinthian church have asked him. So question seven began with the words, now for the matters you wrote about. Uh, and that little phrase comes up again here and there. So when we see now about this at the start of a paragraph, we know it's something the church has asked Paul about, so he's responding to them. And in their context, in non-Christian Corinth, the cultural expectations concerning sex and marriage were that men were expected to be sexually active long before settling down with a wife, and they would commonly get married in their 30s, perhaps. Whereas the common expectation for young women in that culture was that they would be married off as virgins as soon as possible. So that's the first thing to note, the, the cultural things that Paul is speaking into that affects the terms he uses. Second quick thing, this idea of being pledged to a woman in Corinth. So we read that there in verse 27. It, it's a bit like being engaged. I, I think we would probably refer to it like that. So uh, being engaged is used in verse 36 there. But actually, culturally, this was a, a, a stronger tie, a stronger commitment than an engagement we would speak of today, partly because of the involvement of family and even finances in, in such a pledge at that time in that culture. And those things actually also complicated matters when it came to deciding the best way forward in the time of crisis, as we'll see. Third little thing that might distract us, so let's deal with it now, is the footnotes towards the end of the passage. You'll see there's one really long one, footnote C, and there's a shorter one, footnote B. You'll have to take my word for this, but basically we can safely ignore long footnote C. Uh, the text we have actually in the passage is uh, most likely the more valid translation, so we can stick with that. You can ask me about that later. Um, on the other hand, footnote B, the little one, it, it does have a lot more going for it. It may well be a better translation. And I think that with what's in the text in verse 36 is going to help us understand the meaning when we get there. So there we go. That's got all the kind of complex things out of the way. Let's get on with the three points of the passage. And this is all about getting status, especially marital status, in proper perspective. So firstly, the passage encourages us to see status in the light of eternity. Looking at those first two paragraphs, verse 25 to 31, status in the light of eternity. Paul begins his response to their questions about these things by saying in verse 25, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. In other words, these issues that are coming up are mostly not matters of sinning or not sinning. They're more matters of wisdom. Uh, we can tell that by the way Paul gives advice in this chapter. It seems that there, in many cases, there are options available to the Corinthian Christians here. But also we see that Paul wants them to make decisions that best glorify God. So like he says in verse 38, in these matters, there's doing right, yes, but there's also doing better. And so faced with issues of how we understand our, our status, how we decide whether a change in our status is wise, uh, I think we all know that um, a good thing to do in that situation is to seek the advice of wise people who care for us, isn't it? And Paul wants that too for the Corinthians. And so he gives his advice as 
uh, a pastor of them. And his advice is actually a bit more stronger than even a good friend or a pastor, because his good advice to apply heavenly wisdom, well, it's been preserved for us here as God's word. So straight away, this is more than just a smattering of good advice for us. This is God's own wisdom here. And in these first two paragraphs, Paul flags up this present crisis in Corinth as a good reason to stay as you are now in the whole area of pursuing a spouse. But he also highlights how a time of crisis can be really helpful in getting things in eternal perspective. Now, we don't know exactly what the present crisis was in Corinth. We're told about it there in verse 26. And I think a bit like COVID, it was a big enough deal for Paul to say to the church here, I think it's a good idea, status-wise, that you remain as you are for now. Most evidence suggests that it was most probably a severe famine that was really affecting life in Corinth and the surrounding area. Uh, Perhaps that caused a lot of other social unrest that itself was disturbing life in general. Uh, And we've had some experience of that recently, haven't we? And Paul counsels the church saying, look, with this big crisis going going on in the world, if in God's sovereignty you're not currently married... It's not really a wise time to be pursuing marriage. With everything else going on in the world, who needs the extra pressure of being married and having children to care for? You don't even know if you've got enough food for you at the end of the week or a secure job. And plus, for people back then in those days, we we live with so many blessings today of health care and things like that. Uh, In those days, um, marriage would result in children more commonly than it does today. And also childbirth back then brought greater risk to uh, a mother's health. Uh, And so these were big things to be considering and weighing up. Uh, And actually, um, not just sort of from a practical point of view, but from a sort of philosophical point of view, we we know that uh, children make some things better and some things harder. Uh, It was the philosopher Francis Bacon that once wrote, "'Children sweeten labours.'" but they make misfortunes more bitter. Imagine contemplating getting married or having kids in the time of a famine. So do Christians seeking to honor Jesus with this question, should I be pursuing marriage? Should I be staying single as I am? God's word says there's great wisdom in considering the context you find yourself in. Are you living in a time where life is so unstable that it just really wouldn't be wise to seek a change in status. It's good to ask these questions. But I think more importantly, that the heart of this passage comes next, and it's addressed to all of us, and it's saying to us, let us all take into account the relative shortness of life in this fallen world. The fact that this world in its present form is passing away. So that's what Paul says there in verse 31, and it applies to way more than just your marital status. So that paragraph there, 29 to 31, takes these big decisions of life, the big roles that we uh, occupy in life, and it, it sets them in their proper place in the light of eternity. It begins, verse 29, with a reminder that the time is short, 
the time remaining before God judges this world and ushers in the new heavens and the new earth, well, that time is relatively short in the grand scheme of things. All other events in God's salvation plan have taken place. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. And so in the light of all these things, all who come to Christ and come to follow him begin to realize the true value, the true importance of current circumstances and current happiness, of current possessions and current positions. These are all big things. We, we think about them a lot, don't we? But in the light of eternity, they are relatively small things. They are things that will ultimately pass away. And so the challenge Paul sets before Christians in Corinth and in Banstead is not to let the world's view of these things dictate your view of these things, even when it comes to marriage. So that a reminder in verse 39 dealing with a separate issue is that marriage itself is passing away. It doesn't last forever. Back to 29 to 31, Paul quickly lists five areas of life here where our perspective as Christians changes in the light of eternity. And he calls for this attitude that puts them in their proper place, not relegating them, not putting them down to complete unimportance, but not lifting them up to be more important than they really are either. So verse 29, the time is short. Those who have wives should live as if they do not. Men who are married, I can see where your mind is heading. I'm going to stop you there. This is not a license to ignore your wife or break your vows to her in any way, shape, or form. In fact, if you read the, the whole of the New Testament, there is much more to understand about marriage and being a good husband. The point in the context here is not ignore your wife. The point is, don't let your marriage be the be-all and end-all of life. It's Christ who should be number one in your heart. His kingdom and glory should be your greatest pursuit. And so however you've, you've arrived in your marriage, whatever cultural background or family background or circumstances, good or painful or otherwise, whatever has influenced you and caused you to be married, Remember, at the end of the day, it's, it's passing away. It's not your eternal identity. So if you are married, why not take stock and evaluate how you think about your marriage and what place it occupies truly in your heart? Is your life built around your marriage so much that you've just forgotten that the time is short and this world is passing away? Second thing, verse 30, those who mourn as if they did not. The time is short, but once again, this doesn't relegate the value of mourning. Mourning is the appropriate response to some things. And in the context of status, there is a great deal of, of pain and, and mourning that comes from maybe, for example, hoping that one day you would get married or that one day you would have children and those desires 
not being realized. Desires that aren't sinful, good, good desires. Elsewhere in the letter to the Romans, Paul encourages us as a church family to mourn with those who mourn. I take it that includes those who mourn their status in life. Even if they're mourning over something, you'll never have to mourn over yourself. In the body of Christ, mourning is a shared pursuit. But the point here in 1 Corinthians 7 is to put mourning in its proper place. For in Christ, there truly is comfort for those who mourn. So whatever good thing it is that you may be mourning that you don't have, in the end, for those in Christ Jesus, that thing is, is not the last word about you. That thing does not define who you truly are. That status is not necessary at all for you to glorify God, for you to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. Being on mission for Jesus and making disciples of him is not dependent on a status that you don't have. Even if you do struggle with that and if you do mourn that, these verses put our mourning into eternal perspective. And the same goes for our happiness, verse 30, at the other end of the emotional scale. Uh, again, the message is not, don't ever be emotional about things, but rather when happiness comes, hold on to it lightly. Don't let the pursuit of happiness be the be-all and end-all in life. The time is short. Don't get so bogged down with seeking happiness that you stop seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness First of all, the fourth and fifth things, middle of verse 30, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. See how the message is the same, it's, it's being reinforced here. Again, it's not saying don't get involved in this world, don't get involved in work, in business, in investments, in property and so on. But at the same time, don't become engrossed in them either, Christian. Don't let the value that the world places on these things become the value that your heart places on these things. The time is short. The world is, in its present form is passing away. Don't be like those Jesus spoke of in the parable of the great banquet. They had a wrong perspective on these very things. And that's why they said no to Jesus. Come to my banquet, Jesus says. Everything is ready. But they made their excuses. One said, I've just bought a field. I've got to go and take a look at it. Another said, I've just bought some oxen and I've arranged to go and try them out. Another said, I've just got married, so I can't come. Don't be like them. If pandemics and crises come along, let's welcome what they teach us about this world and what is passing away. Let's seek God's wisdom in making decisions that have to do with our status in life. Let's hold loosely to the things of this world, holding fast to Jesus. How can you and I display um, more of this as followers of Jesus? I think in practice, a lot of it comes down to asking yourself, how am I using my time? How am I using my week? How am I making decisions? In practice, what is functionally 
most important for me in deciding how I'm going to use my time on earth? And is Jesus really number one in that? Or if I'm honest, is it my, my job or my house or my possessions? Are they so important to me that they're leading me away from following Jesus or leading me away from building up my brothers and sisters in the church? When I think about who I give my time to in the church family, am I just giving time to people who have a similar status to me? And if so, what what does that say about my view of all these things in the light of eternity? So let me encourage us, those with children, please give time to those without children. Those who are married, please invest time in your single brothers and sisters. Those who are younger, please give time to those who are older. Those who think too much about their work at weekends, give you some time to a brother or sister who works in something completely different to you. And let's think together how we can encourage one another to follow Jesus, to make more disciples of him, to listen well to what that looks like for people who are different from us. May God help us to see our status, whatever it might be, in the light of eternity. And also, secondly, to see our status in the light of devotion. Paragraph verse 32 to 35. Uh, In many ways, these next two points that will be shorter, uh, they flow out from the first one. So here in this next paragraph, Paul wants Christians who are wondering about marriage to really have their eyes open to the whole ways in which marriage is likely to affect life in general, and in particular, their devotion to Christ. And Paul has news for people who think that getting married is going to make it easier for them to follow Jesus. He points out that there are added complications to married life that necessarily draw on your time and energy, whether you are a husband or a wife. In fact, you could say that Paul clearly prefers singleness himself. He sees being single as giving a Christian greater opportunity for devotion to Christ. We don't know if Paul was single all his life, Uh, Perhaps he may have been a widower, but he was clearly single during his ministry as an apostle. And that enabled him to be just the kind of missionary and witness and church planter that God wanted him to be. Think of all the, the hardships that Paul went through, the challenges that he faced. Not exactly conducive to having a wife and kids to care for. Again, Paul reminds us this is not a choice between Uh, a good thing and a bad thing. So he says in verse 35, I'm not saying this to restrict you. He's not coming out and saying, don't get married. But rather, just be aware. Be aware that marriage is naturally going to consume more of your energy and emotion and time. So take care that you are still ultimately devoted to Jesus, the Lord. He's the only one worthy of our greatest devotion. So if you're considering marriage, do make sure you consider it with your eyes open on this issue, if you're a follower of Jesus. Even if you get the best Christian spouse that you could possibly imagine, even if you are the best Christian spouse that you could possibly imagine, the road of married life is still going to be busy and bumpy. 
and you'll always have to battle to keep Jesus number one in your hearts. If that's not you and you're not considering those things, or if you're um, in a state of singleness at the moment, how are you ordering your life, making the most of those opportunities you do have to structure life in a way that expresses your devotion to Jesus above other things? Maybe you are a married Christian and you're aware of these pressures in, in married life that can lead to your interests being divided, um, and you can feel that pull on always having to battle to keep Jesus number one. If that's you, if you and your spouse are both Christians, then let me encourage you, talk, talk together about this. How can you work together to compensate for this? to keep each other committed to Jesus most of all amidst all the other calls on your time and energy. If you're married and your spouse is not a Christian, these things still apply, uh, and we pray that God would give you grace to work these things through as best you can in your situation. It's not easy. But God, as we heard earlier in the chapter, is sovereignly caring for you in that situation, enabling you to be salt and light. Find faithful brothers and sisters in church who can pray for you and support you in that. If you're someone who is married with children, again, carve out some time to work through the issues of parenthood, specifically thinking, how is this all affecting my own walk with the Lord? your other half is a Christian, pray together about these things. Keep Jesus as number one and not your kids' success in life. And for all of us, as, as we look at our circumstances, as we look at one another's circumstances, let's most of all ask how we can help one another follow Jesus. And to do that, whatever the circumstances God has been pleased to place us in, be it single, married, kids, no kids, whatever. Let's help one another to not make these things the be-all and end-all of life, but to make Jesus number one in the life we are each being called to live now, where God has placed us now. May God help us to see our status in the light of being devoted to Jesus and make wise choices accordingly. Thirdly and lastly, we see status change in the light of God's glory. Status change in the light of God's glory. These two last paragraphs have this idea of changing status in common. So they address the issue of whether Christians should pursue a change in their current marital status. If they feel drawn that way, uh, what should they do? And Paul lays down advice, wisdom, uh, and teaching that helps such believers prioritize God's glory. So first up, we've got this engaged guy in verse 36. So um, remember the wisdom from point one about the present crisis in Corinth? Well, this guy's heard all that from Paul, and he's basically thinking, okay, Paul, but I still think I should get married. So what advice for him? Again, we're reminded this is a choice between doing good and doing better. So verse 38, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. Uh, at this point, we need to raise another big 
context flag and, and wave it furiously. Uh, Paul is not saying, if you're engaged to a girl, well, the best outcome is for you to just break it off. He's not saying that. He's got the present crisis in Corinth in mind here. And when he says, does not marry her, he's not meaning break it off, but rather, as he's counseled earlier in the chapter, stay as you are for now. Stay engaged. Wait till the crisis has passed. And then marry her. The phrase, um, verse 36 there, not acting honorably, um, it could refer to sexual temptation on, on the part of the man, um, but it could also refer to pressure from the society around him to, to marry or, or not marry, to delay marriage for uh, some other reason as well. Remember, um, the engagements of the day, the betrothals of the day were very messy affairs, shall we say. So, for example, if your prospective father-in-law was giving you a nice little allowance each month for securing your engagement to his daughter, then you might be tempted to drag that engagement out for as long as possible uh, before following through in the marriage. And footnote C could well be a, a more helpful translation that the phrase refers to uh, the woman being beyond the usual age for marriage. So remember, Paul's addressing Corinth here, the norms of the day. There were norms and expectations, and it wasn't necessary to, to fly in the face of them for the sake of it when they didn't contradict God's word. But it's interesting that if we go back to the sort of middle chunk, verse 37, Paul focuses uh, on the man being settled in his own mind on the matter, free from other constraints. So if as a Christian your reasons for getting married are, are not primarily you deciding to glorify God by getting married, then the upshot is it's probably wise to, uh, to think again or, or hold off the marriage, especially if other factors are in play, other pressures that are somehow restricting your freedom in Christ in this issue. So for Paul to do better in this matter, as he says there in, in 38, is, if you like, to make a choice before God to settle in your own heart on a decision that is, is realistic, decent, fitting, honoring to God, is a wise guard against sexual immorality, yes, but also one that promotes your service of the Lord Jesus, a choice that aims to please God in what you're doing. Another status people could find themselves in is that of widowhood or widowerhood. Um, Paul completes the picture for them in our last two verses. He clarifies that they are indeed free to marry once again, that marriage itself lasts uh, only until the death of a spouse. And again, verse 40, because of the present crisis, the devotional opportunities, Paul gives his judgment and counsel that someone in that situation is, is happier, in his opinion, staying as they are. Again, there is freedom. But also, again, freedom in these things is meant to be used for God's glory. We're reminded that for the Christian, any prospective spouse should also belong to the Lord. This is a, a different issue to the earlier part of chapter 7, where people were becoming Christians and their spouses were not, this is now about making a choice as a Christian for God's glory. 
before marriage. So for those of us considering a status change, I don't know why I said us in that. <laughs> it just, just came out. For those considering a status change, is your decision motivated by God's glory? Have you had a little stop and thought, what other things could be pulling you in that particular direction? Is there something else constraining you, or is it really, yes, Lord, here's the way I think I can honor you best in life? If you're pursuing such a change, maybe think about the timing of the change again. That might help you consider where God's glory comes on your priorities list. And this applies not just to marriage, but to all our commitments in this life that relate to this present world that is passing away. The time is short. I'm not thankful for a global pandemic, but I think I am thankful for the way it helps us get these things in eternal perspective. Uh, we'll have a chance to talk about them some more in our question time shortly, but let me pray as we close this section. Father, thank you for lifting our eyes this evening to the things that are unseen uh, and to consider those things that will remain for all eternity. Uh, Lord, help us to see everything else in its proper place. Uh, Lord, give us wisdom and grace as we uh, help one another to follow Jesus in the light of these words. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing, and then David's going to introduce our, our question time. Uh, we're going to sing about God's grace. Uh, that has saved us and that God's grace is sufficient for us in us getting from where we are now uh, to that eternal kingdom. Let's stand and sing Grace Unmeasured. <laughs>